You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 15, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Bill Davidow, the author of Overconnected, The Promise and Threat of the Internet. Bill is a partner at Moore Davidow Ventures, a venture capital firm, and has been a high-tech industry executive and a venture investor for more than 30 years. He also sits on the foundation board of the University of California at San Francisco and on the board of the California Nature Conservancy. In today's interview, Bill talks about what it means to be overconnected, the problems caused by overconnection, and what we can do to cut back on connectivity in order to restore balance to our politics, economies, and personal lives. We're extremely pleased to welcome Bill Davidow to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today I'll be talking with Bill Davidow about what he calls overconnectedness, and he'll provide some really practical pointers for how to reduce the number of connections in your life in order to make things a little bit more manageable for you. And I'd like to add a specific tip for cutting back on overconnectedness that you can practice even as little as once a year with some real benefits. And that is to prune your contact list. That might mean your friends in Facebook, might mean your connections in LinkedIn or other social media. It might be your contacts in Outlook or whatever other contact software you use. All of us are adding people to these lists all the time. The software and particularly social media sites are designed to encourage us to add people, to friend people. And although they allow us to remove people from our set of contacts, they don't make it particularly easy. They generally don't encourage us to do it. And as a result, we have to make an extra effort to remove people from our contact lists. Now, first, let me ask you, have you ever done this? <laughs> I would bet that some of you have only ever added people as friends to Facebook or connections in LinkedIn and have never removed anyone ever. I'm not saying that to criticize you. I'm just saying it to point out that we all have this tendency in part because the software tends to be designed to make it so easy to add people and to encourage us to add people. And as I said, makes it hard to remove them. So there's nothing wrong with any of us for not removing people. But when we realize that there is some real benefit to cutting back, it may seem strange that we don't do it. And if you are still wondering what the benefit might possibly be. <laughs> it may be that um, that's because we've only been really told about how great it is to always be connected to more and more people. And I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with being connected to more people per se. Instead, 
I'm just suggesting that you take some time. As I said, it could even be once a year to stop and be mindful. Look at, let's say, uh, on Facebook, just as an example, who you're connected with. Now, sometimes people do talk about removing friends for very practical reasons like privacy or because someone's become a real enemy and perhaps you're afraid of what they might do to you or you don't want them knowing personal things about you. Those are perfectly fine reasons for removing people. I'm suggesting this really for the mindfulness, stress reduction type of benefits that it can provide. For example, the more people you have amongst your friends in Facebook, the more information you will see from all of those people in Facebook, the easier it will be for all of them to communicate with. And when you look at that list, let's say you do it once a year, ask yourself, do you really need or want to be deluged with information from people who you are, say, no longer really friends with or perhaps have any contact with? Maybe you've moved and you are no longer in touch and just are not interested in being in touch with certain people who say you used to live near but you don't anymore, people from a previous job. Might be a good time when you move or when you move jobs to use that as an opportunity to pause and ask yourself, not for any malicious reason do I want to cut these people out of my life, just out of respect for your own time and your own attention and mind share to ask yourself, do I want to be spending any of my precious attention every day, perhaps every hour if you're on Facebook that much, reading news updates from people who just are not at the moment part of my life? That's said in a negative way. What, what do I not want to have be coming into focus of my attention? There'd be a more positive way to put it, which is by removing these people from my set of friends, might that provide me with more time or energy or focus during the day to be present with the people who are currently really important to me in my life, my current friends, my family, my current co-workers. It's really not necessarily saying anything negative about the people who you're removing from the list. It's really saying, could be saying something positive about just where you want your very precious mental, emotional, energy to go when you're online. And it's unfortunate, I think, even that the word friend is used by Facebook. I think there's a reason for it from Facebook's perspective. But when you remove someone from a friends list, <laughs> that might make you feel a little bit or result in you feeling a little bit guilty or hesitant to do that because uh, you are now making someone not your friend. 
if you step back from it for a minute and think all you're doing is taking someone off of a contact list, you're not actually making them not your friend in in any real sense. (laughs) The fact that Facebook has used that word friend, if you do pause and really look at it, in a mindful way, namely for what it actually is. It's a representation of a person on Facebook. You're not doing anything to that person. You're not hurting them. You're not insulting them. No harm will come to them if you defriend them. And the same is true if you remove someone from any social network of yours or from your contact list. But I just say this because a network like Facebook, and I just use them as an example, even the terminology that it uses might influence us to have a certain feeling about taking this action, which could be to our own benefit and lead us to feel guilty and therefore not not do it. And I think uh, if you listen to the interview with Bill Davidow and hear about all of the other ways in which being overconnected can be harmful to us. You might think in a new way or perhaps question or call into question whether simply always adding people, more and more people, to all of our sets of connections online is necessarily a good thing. And I'll just close to repeat the point once again. I'm not saying adding any particular person or people is necessarily bad, it might be great for you. It might be great for me. It might be great for you at certain times and not at others. Certain people might be good to add and not at others. The real point of this tip is merely to pause and look at your list so that you can make a mindful or conscious, thoughtful decision about who should be on and who should be off, and not merely automatically stay always in the habit of always adding and never removing people from your connections without giving any thought to the implications of that for the draw on your attention and your mind that results from a never-ending, increasing set of connections online. And with that, we will turn to the interview with Bill Davidow, the author of Overconnected. Hi, Bill, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hello, Robert. I'd like to start out by talking about your book, Overconnected, which had the subtitle, The Promise and Threat of the Internet. I mean, most of us are familiar with the promise of the internet. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what you meant by the term overconnected, and then we can start to talk about the threats that an overconnected internet poses to us. Well, uh, I, I'm an engineer, and um, in engineering, we talk about something called positive feedback, which is very different than petting your dog and making its tail wag. <laughs> when an engineer talks about 
positive feedback. He's talking about processes where change adds to change. And uh, so uh, market crazes, uh, housing uh, booms, and things like this are positive feedback processes where people think the price of a house is or housing is going up so they rush in and buy before the prices go up which creates a lot of demand which causes price to go up further um, which creates more demand as people rush in to buy and uh, all then suddenly the prices get too high and you have um, a housing bust and what i was observing about the internet and connectivity is that when you increase the number of connections and when you strengthen them, you create a lot of what is called gain in the system, which creates very virulent positive feedback processes. And those positive feedback processes drive things to extreme. And when things get too extreme, you get housing bubbles, you get financial crises, you get things like that. And so in the book, I was talking about uh, derivatives, uh, which are financial instruments that are essentially a form of financial insurance. And in the year uh, 2000, the notional value of all the derivatives, uh, over-the-counter derivatives outstanding was $60 trillion, which was about equal to the economic output of the world. By 2007, uh, the notional value of those financial instruments was over $600 trillion. It was the interconnectivity that we had that enabled all this trading and things like this to go on and those derivatives played a very fundamental role in the financial collapse that happened uh, in 2008. So that's an example of the type of thing that can happen. Also, uh, something else happens when you interconnect a lot of things. Um, the opposite effect can happen, where you can drive things to an average. So it's just like if um, I had a number of vessels of water and I interconnected them all with pipes at the bottom, everything would reach the same level. And um, when that happens, uh, everything approaches an average. And uh, one of the things that we never talked about openly with the American public was the averaging effect of world trade. So if you connect everything strongly, things tend to converge on an average. And what happens is that the wages in um, countries that are below the average tend to go up, and the wages in countries that are above the average tend to feel a lot of pressure to come down. And uh, so that as we interconnected things in world trade, things began to approach the average, and uh, that has created a lot of anger about uh, world trade and open markets, and these were things that we didn't talk about openly 
when uh, we talked about world trade. It's interesting because this idea that being that there can be such a thing as being too connected is contrary to a pretty common belief, at least in connection with the internet. And that common belief, I think, is that the more connection, the better. And I think there are some people who would say, well, you might have a point about housing markets or finance or wages, but uh, on the internet where the exchange is in ideas, the more connection, the more openness, the more people on there exchanging ideas, the better. And and uh, if there's a problem, the solution is even more connectedness. <laughs> I wonder what you have to say to that. Well, how are you enjoying email? <laughs> Not very much. <laughs> All right. So that is a typical example of connection that is out of control. Uh, what we did was we underpriced email. And as a result of underpricing email, we made it possible to externalize costs. So by that I mean, we made it very easy for people to pursue you and make you spend your time on their annoyances. And um, because there was a return to them, because it was uh, of zero cost for them to interrupt you constantly. So we have the fact, I think it is, that the average person spends, uh, I think it is 17 hours a week dealing with email. And I figured that the average person, the, the cost of doing that and getting rid of junk email came to, if you valued the person's time at $50 an hour, to a dollar and a half per junk email. And uh, so think about that. Somebody gets to send you an email for a fraction of a penny and gets you to spend an hour and a half of your time on that endeavor. Uh, so that uh, these things to, uh, if you do not consider externalities, you can arrive at the conclusion that the more communication, the better, because you say, well, there are benefits to it. But you've got to be willing to look at the associated costs. Yeah, I mean, the sales pitch we've received for a long time uh, from Silicon Valley and elsewhere is more connection all of the time, everywhere, right? Mobile, wireless, constant, high-speed connectivity, the better. I think for a long time, they didn't even have to make an argument to people necessarily that that was good. Uh, all they had to do was let people know, we're going to give you more and more of it, and people answered the call. Yeah. Well, uh, you can look at all kinds of uh, interesting things, uh, uh uh, Adam Gazelli's uh, most uh, recent book is pretty interesting, and I forget the actual title of it. It's uh, sitting somewhere close by. But, um, you know, he, um, he points out uh, the, the cost of interruptions. And um, he, uh, 
it gives powerful arguments, and he's a researcher at UCSF, that um, that there is um, a, a, a cost every time that you are inter- interrupted, and that um, human beings don't multitask; they fa- they um, they they task switch, and that uh, it, it, task switching times are involved in things and um, there this leads to all kinds of problems Um, one of the reasons why uh, you shouldn't uh, text while you drive is that it takes one or two seconds to task switch from uh, texting to looking at the road and at 60 miles an hour that's 88 feet per second Uh, so you can only afford to do task switching when your task switching time is much, much faster than the time required to respond to the environment. Um, And uh, so that's one of the things that happens. Um, There's also a book out by, uh, his, his book is called The Distracted Mind. I found it. There's also a book out by Gene Twenge, iGen, um, which uh, similarly talks about the psychological effects that the attention economy is having on um, people who have grown up with cell phones in terms of mental illness and things like this. I wonder, uh, I know in the book you give many different examples of, of real-world phenomenon that demonstrate this harmful effect of being overconnected. The book was written in 2011, quite ahead of its time. I wonder if you have any thoughts about the phenomenon of so-called fake news. Uh, It seems to me to fit some of what you talk about, the ability of something to spread uh, far and wide beyond what it might otherwise and have harmful effects. Do you have any thoughts about that more recent phenomenon? Well, sure. Fake news is is really easy to explain. Uh, What fake news, it it used to be that that talking, mass communication was expensive. Uh, And if you wanted to do mass communication, you had to have a, a mass communication media, a newspaper, uh, a television channel, and there was editorial control over the sources as a result of that. And um, so that there was control over who got to talk, and um, as a result, uh, they they enforced discipline on the channel. Now, uh, you know, you would think that letting everybody talk um, – would be good for democracy. Um, now, what we did with all these internet tools is we reduced to zero the cost of one-to-many communication. In the past, one-to-many communication was virtually impossible. Uh, if you were going to do it, uh, I had to get interviewed on a network television show or write an op-ed for a, a newspaper, and I was subject to editorial control. 
which uh, put handcuffs on me. So what happens is that when you reduce the cost of one-to-many communication, uh, you empowered uh, lots of people who had less than noble motives. And that might be a tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent or a thousandth of a percent, but you have given them a voice and uh, they get to act irresponsibly to pursue their own aims. And uh, that's the source of fake news. It's interesting. You mentioned earlier, you're an engineer. I'm also uh, an engineer by training and it brings to mind the signal processing concept of dampening, right? And for those of us, those people who are listening who aren't engineers, if you yell at the top of a mountaintop, the vibrations in the air from your voice, uh, you know, decrease and get softer over distance. And that's a fa- one of, example of dampening of a signal in nature. Uh, it sounds yeah. to me like you're talking about a system in which there's no dampening or perhaps much less than there would be in lots of other situations. Yeah. I mean, in other words, uh, we've taken the the resistance out of the system and the assumption was that that people would act responsibly. And the problem is that a large percentage of the people, the, the vast majority of the people act responsibly. But what we have done is facilitated irresponsible behavior by a few. And uh, that's what creates fake news. Yeah, I think there there was that assumption. I think in economics, people use the term friction. And I remember back in the early days of the internet, everyone was talking about eliminating friction from transactions, right? Creating zero friction. I think that's essentially been Amazon's goal all along to make it as easy and uh, frictionless as possible to go from your desire to buy a product to having it at your doorstep. The assumption was friction is just bad. Uh, no friction would be ideal. Uh, so it's it's a very powerful belief that a lot of people have about... Well, I, I think no friction is great in certain circumstances. And like, like anything, I mean... Uh, you know, uh, the, the people who invented nuclear power said, you know, <laughs> the invention itself is neutral. It's the way it's used. And, um, you know, the, 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 the question is, in any of these things is the way it's used. Uh, You know, as an example, how many people look at the reply to all button and in their mind say, when I hit reply to all, I am forcing everybody on that list to do a lot of work. So the question is, do I really want to hit reply to all? And, uh, you know, it's like in many cases, and I try to use that button very, very thoughtfully because frequently somebody will send out a message to 50 people in a group and uh, to inform them of something. And just because you've been informed of something 
doesn't mean that all 50 people who got that message want to read your opinion about it. And, uh, and uh, so uh, that doesn't, so you ought to think about that when you hit reply to all. And uh, it, a lot of this is individual responsibility. And uh, I don't think people are uh, thoughtful about what their responsibilities are. Um, we've empowered a, a lot of people to do things that um, they never had the power to do in the past. And when you've been empowered, you have to be extremely thoughtful about how you use that power. In the past, we only had, you know, uh, low levels of connectivity. Now lots of us are in situations where we can be super highly connected and then we have a choice. You know, you gave the example where you can choose to hit reply all or not. Now that we have that choice, how do you have any pointers for how to distinguish between, you know, how do we individually or collectively through government organizations, do you have any guidance or pointers on how to try to distinguish between the two now that we have both as options? Well, I, I mean, there are all kinds of things. Uh, you can say, uh, as an example, you can use the power to polarize society, or you can use the power to bring us together. Uh, so, uh, it, it, you know, democracy does not work well in a highly polarized society. So, uh, you know, you, you, and there are uh, lots of things we can do to uh, facilitate uh, communication uh, that will bring us together. So uh, I, I was thinking about um, the book by Robert Putnam, Making Democracy Work, which I think was published in 1993. And what he did was he pointed out that it was a study of uh, democracy in Italy. And what he did was he pointed out that in uh, states where there were lots of people who worked together with common interests, like on sporting events and things like this, that that cut across um, vertical interests, that society worked better. And so there are things, activities that we can use to bring us together, and there are activities that we can use that drive us apart. And if uh, we engage in stuff on the internet, where we tend to hang out with people and we classify everybody else as jerks, we're engaging in activities that drive us apart. So uh, one of the things about that is that, well, uh, let's not engage in those activities. And by that, do you mean activities in which we're connecting with other people who are already just like us? Well, if, if, if we choose to exclusively only connect with people just like us and constantly reinforce one another's beliefs rather than saying, hey, all of us in this, in this particular discussion group feel this way. Let's try and understand why the other people in this other area feel the way they do, and let's try and find a way to work together. 
that's a positive approach to things. If you get in these groups where uh, somebody says the other guys are all bad and evil, and uh, you write a post saying, I can't tell you that you're underestimating how evil they are. Um, they're even more evil than you thought. You're reinforcing the polarization, and ultimately, uh, you're undermining uh, probably our democratic institutions. Yeah, and there's been a lot of attention paid recently to how much more this is uh, re reinforced by algorithms. It's not just people making individual choices. It's Facebook and elsewhere analyzing what we're interested in and then making suggestions to us to look at things that are consistent with what we already believe. Yeah, well, all right. So that's a perfect example of something that Facebook and Twitter and things like this could decide not to do. In the past, we used to have to go out and search for things. And it's the process of searching exposed us to alternative thought. Now, uh, one person would say, I don't want to look at anything other than what I believe in already. And so I want all of the things that Facebook does to only expose me to things I already know. And so that's a great efficiency. Another person could look at it and say, hey, Facebook, stop this. Make us do some work because the searching, the searching process itself is healthy for society. Mm -hmm. And then we might need the search engines also to change how they work because they tend to uh, look at what our previous uh, behavior is, what our preferences are, and to a certain extent, filter or prioritize results, you know, based on who we, who they believe us to be. That's correct. You know, it reminds me of the old days of the newspaper. And even if you had a newspaper that people believed is biased, you know, people think the New York Times has a liberal bias, but whether you believe that or not, you'd pick it up and just by glancing at the front page, you would see a collection of headlines on international, local, national news that would expose you to topics and perhaps ideas that you wouldn't seek out on your own. Well, that, that's one of the benefits of, I, you know, I, I read the newspaper on an iPad and I read the newspaper as a physical newspaper and I find myself getting broader exposure in the physical media just because of the way I page through it. Mm -hmm. And maybe if I were better at looking at things on my iPad, I, I would feel the other way around. But for some reason, having that big page in front of me uh, enables me to see a lot of things all in my visual field. And, uh, you know, a lot of this happens sort of for the way we were evolved. We were evolved in a physical world uh, and our senses, uh, our, our sight, our hearing, our smell, uh, our brain chemistry, were all evolved to 
to respond to physical phenomena and are much are extremely poorly designed to respond to virtual phenomena mm -hmm. and we don't appreciate that I wonder what other uh, suggestions you might have for what people can do. You've given a few, you know, some like the reply all, like reading something that mimics a physical medium, which I have to say, it does require some degree of patience uh, <laughs> compared to, you know, uh, just searching for what you're interested in. It requires some ability to tolerate looking at things that you might not find the most interesting possible. Sure. Sure. But then every now and then you do find something where you never would have seen before. So, I mean, I have my own habits. I believe very strongly in what Gazelli says. So, um, I only, I, 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 I turn off all the alerts on my systems. Uh, I, I, I tend to say I will only look at email a few times a day, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, because I want to intensely focus. I am aware of the fact that the physical environment in which I live has no purpose, has no purpose. The virtual environment has been designed predominantly with a commercial purpose. So uh, you, you've got to view that as a manipulative environment and approach things with caution in that environment. And, and uh, so I, I tend to be very conscious that uh, when I go into the virtual environment that um, people are trying to distract me, dominate my attention, um, get me to um, go where they want me to go uh, rather than where, uh, you know, I might want to spend my time, things like that. Mm -hmm. So you're really suggesting adopting a certain attitude. It sounds to me like defensive driving in a way, <laughs> you know, preparing yourself for what you're getting into before you go online so that you could be more likely to uh, protect yourself and, and do what you want to do. Well, I give you an example. Uh, I have a perfect environment where I live. My cell phone does not work well. <laughs> and I love it. I love it because uh, that means that I tell people, please do not call me on my cell phone because it doesn't work when I'm in the house. Now, that has freed me from a tremendous amount of interruption. And, you know, my wife and my kids and people who are critically important to me know that when I'm out of the house, my cell phone will be on. Um, it has also uh, meant that I don't have to constantly respond to instant messaging. And uh, I, I, I realize that uh, these modes of communication or are more and more important. But one of the ways I gained a tremendous amount of personal time was by restricting the number of channels that had access to me. So I, I tried not to have multiple phone numbers. 
and and things like this. And so the the question is, and I think uh, today um, I try and work very hard to control my environment, whereas there are other people who are happy living in an interrupt-driven environment. And I believe that uh, uh, if that makes them happy, they should live that way. I believe that we are extremely maladapted to living in an interrupt-driven environment. And, um, uh, and uh, it, 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 you know, we uh, long ago, when I first got a cell phone, um, I used to talk on the cell phone in my car. Um, I discovered on several occasions while I was on phone conversations that I drove by freeway exits. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting. Um, I didn't notice that freeway exit. I wonder what else I'm not noticing when I'm talking on my cell phone. For some reason, talking on a cell phone is more distracting in a car than talking to the person who is next to you. I am very, very conscious of this, and I don't talk on a cell phone in a car anymore because I'm in a car, I'm going 60 miles an hour. Actually, I'm going faster than that most of the time, <laughs> and it's extremely dangerous. And the chances that I'm going to be involved in an accident are extremely small, but the consequences of making a mistake are extremely large. And so uh, the question is, you know, how do you want to live your life? And uh, there are things I do where I take, and for years have taken excessive risks, and I do it consciously. And there are other times when I say it's just not worth doing. It seems like you're talking about specific ways in your own life in which you've addressed the problem of overconnectedness uh, by consciously imposing limitations on being connected. Yeah, and bear in mind that I have a tremendous advantage over, I'm presuming you and most of the people who are listening to this podcast, I'm 82 years old and I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be on call for my boss and I don't have to let a customer, I don't have to respond to a customer in, in 30 minutes or lose the order. So, um, you know, I, I have exercised the age option (laughs) <laughs> to improve the quality of my life. Um, but um, it, it really does. And I am phenomenally more productive because of it. And uh, and uh, uh, I, I think that that's a great thing for me, but I am not um, sure that it would work if I were you know, trying to climb the corporate ladder and was you know, 30 years old. Yeah, but I think we all have something to learn from you, even if we can't implement it to the extent you have, uh, you know, any amount to which we can limit what we do, even if it's a small amount, is still a benefit over the the constant connectivity. So thanks for sharing those. 
I, I wrote an article on why dogs don't use the internet. <laughs> and uh, the, the reason for it is that a tremendous amount of what goes on on the internet is manipulating your brain chemistry. Um, the reason why you're constantly picking up your cell phone or why you can't stop playing an e-game is because you're constantly getting dopamine rewards. And uh, the techniques that are used on the internet are the same techniques that are used to create gambling addiction. And when you train a dog, you use those same reward techniques in training a dog. It's called operant conditioning. So you are operant conditioned as an individual on the internet, and as a dog, you are operant conditioned when you're being trained. The dog did something very, very smart. <laughs> it looks you in the eye, and it is willing to swap training because it creates trust, which is something else that goes on in your brain and your brain chemistry and the releases of oxytocin, which creates trust between you and the dog. The equivalent moderating influence on the internet is not trust, it's the free market. A dog is too smart to make that deal, but people do it all the time. Can you explain what you mean by that? What Follow that lead down the path. Well, all right. These internet companies are taking my brain chemistry and leveraging it for commercial ends. They're either using it to get a young kid to spend 40 hours a week playing games, Facebook is using that same kind of manipulation to keep you constantly updating your Facebook site and, and uh, engaged with Facebook, things like that. The whole attention economy is focused on leveraging your dopamine response in your brain. It's got a commercial goal. You know, the goal is to have you spend all the time looking at these things so somebody can keep advertising to you or get you to buy an upgrade to your game or things like that. And so it, it's, it, it's not in an environment that is an environment that's designed to care for you. Your dog is creating an environment in which he or she is caring for you, and it's a trust environment. Uh, there is no trust associated with the Internet, or there's very little of it. I mean, I have, I have a great deal of actual trust in Amazon. I, I believe they do a wonderful job. But... Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I view that as a commercial transaction and, uh, you know, I, I, I trust them to deliver on, uh, their promises. Uh, but, uh, 
these other institutions are uh, not motivated by doing things that are in my personal interest. It's been quite a few years since you wrote over Connected, and I, I wonder um, if you see any signs of hope or improvement. I did see just very recently uh, one of the co-founders of Facebook, Sean Parker, came out with some really critical comments about Facebook, saying that uh, the company exploits vulnerabilities in human psychology. And it was kind of a mea culpa where he talked about <laughs> the path he feels the company has gone down to take advantage of people. All the controversies over fake news seem to have put some pressure on high-tech companies to address the spread of that kind of information and do what they can to reel it back in. I I wonder if you think things have gotten worse or better, perhaps in different ways in the time since you wrote over Connected. Well, I think they've gotten worse, and I think they can get better. And I I, I think that that uh, the fact that there's all this debate about these things is the start of things getting better. And uh, you start with all these new things, and people didn't see the side effects. Now we're becoming conscious of what the side effects are. And we're saying that we have to do things about it. And I believe that we have always adjusted to these technology advances by figuring out how to adapt to them. And I see no reason why we aren't going to figure out how to adapt to these. But uh, you've got to be honest with yourself about what they are. I wonder if you have, you, as an engineer, if you have any thoughts about, uh, even on a small scale, engineering solutions to, to overconnectedness. Well, there, you know, are, are, are lots of things you can do. I mean, uh, a, a, a simple thing is there's no reason for email to be free. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, um, somebody had to spend 10 cents to send me an email, it would cut out a lot of the junk email it would save me a lot of time. And, uh, it would force the people who were sending the emails to act more responsibly. And in the past, it used to cost 50 cents or a dollar to send me a third class mail and business didn't shrivel up and go away. <laughs> I know other people have suggested this just for listeners. You're specifically talking about imposing a cost on the sender. Oh, absolutely. I'm a sender at times too, so it's going to make me pay something. But that's okay. I mean, if we really believe in the free market, and and I think I'm really a valuable guy, uh, you know, why wouldn't I charge $5 for uh, 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 somebody to send me an email? And uh, I, my friends in my address book could communicate with me for nothing. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, 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 there are all kinds of things. If, you know, World of Warcraft is a Addictive and addictive environment. And I'm not using the name of a modern game or a Facebook is a 
is an addictive environment, you really believe it is, well, what do we do with other addictive environments? We, we tax them. We tax cigarettes. Maybe we should tax connect time. Uh, th there are policy things you could do, and people would scream about that. But, you know, there are all kinds of things you can think about doing that are quite radical. Um, why um, should uh, people be able to sell my personal information? to make money from advertisers. Give me the ownership of my information, and uh, if uh, I own it, and then um, I want all these free services from Google, I can say to Google, here's a collection of my information you can sell, and, uh, and give me free services, otherwise I'll pay you $5 a month for the rights to use Google. Um, I mean, it, it, there are all kinds of things that could be done to uh, change the way the virtual world works, and uh, uh, I suspect we would it would make it better. Yeah, these are all great suggestions. It seems that the the first step would be to for people to just even understand that there are possibilities like this, and to get up in arms about it. <laughs> to take action on uh, moving forward, you know, on, on new technologies or on policy changes or regulation or taxes. So thanks for giving us those ideas. Look, you and our predecessors evolved in a physical environment. And we spent, I'm going to say, two million years doing it. And our vision, our sense of smell, our sense of taste, hearing, our brain chemistry, our consciousness was all designed in that physical environment. And it was designed to help us survive in the physical environment. So when we put ourselves into the virtual environment, we are using our bodies and brains and minds to do things that they weren't designed to do. And uh, I'll give you a couple of simple examples. You have eyes in the back of your head. They are called ears. <laughs> If you want to be safe in a physical environment, you do not listen to music on your iPhone in a physical environment. When I used to helicopter ski, you were not allowed to use those devices because you wanted to hear an avalanche behind you or the yell of somebody if they fell into a tree well. And yet I see bikers and walkers and people like this in they put blinders on the ears and the eyes in the back of their head. Um, you know, a, another wonderful thing is our eyes. If we were designed to 
be gazing at our cell phones and walking around or driving, we would have two sets of eyes. Now, I thought about that, and uh, there is a fish that lives in the Amazon that has two sets of eyes. So evolution will do that for you. And he has one set of eyes that are used, he swims close to the surface, for looking at predators above the surface, and another set of eyes for looking at prey underneath the water. So if we were really evolved to live in a virtual environment where we wanted to drive and text, we'd have two sets of eyes. And I, I suspect that if we live another few hundred million years, uh, we'll see that. But not today. <laughs> not today. Well, thanks so much, Bill, for sharing all of your uh, knowledge and, and insight and uh, suggestions for how to deal with an overconnected world and to pull back on it a little bit to be more focused and uh, productive in the face of, of all of that. Well, thanks so much for spending the time with me. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Bill Davidow, the author of Overconnected, The Promise and Threat of the Internet. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Liza Kindred, a meditation teacher, speaker, and author, and the founder of Mindful Technology. <laughs>